This is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. I'd like to thank our sponsors who make our podcast possible. We take our podcast with the ongoing support of Raider and Jason Sikora, our sound engineer. Raider is a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. Iberia Bank and First Horizon, who are now one bank. Two relationship-driven banks, both leaders in the industry, have officially joined forces. The combination of Iberia Bank and First Horizon creates a leading financial services company dedicated to enriching the lives of their clients, associates, and their communities. I'd also like to thank Lafayette General Health, who has joined the Oshner Health family and is now Oshner Lafayette General. As one health system, Oshner Lafayette General will provide expanded services and enhanced care from the familiar faces you already trust. Oshner Lafayette General means more resources to help solve healthcare's toughest problems, reinvesting in our communities, and being further committed to health and wellness. Oshner Lafayette General. Together means more. Learn more today at togethermeansmore.org. Nadia Delahousie, a partner at the Jones Walker Law Firm, is our guest today. Nadia chairs the firm's telemedicine team and is co-leader of their healthcare litigation team. She works extensively with hospitals, health systems, providers, and startup companies to structure and integrate telemedicine, telehealth, and digital health platforms. Her passion for the expansion and growth of telemedicine began in 1997 when she co-created and helped launch one of Louisiana's first teleradiology networks. With more than 25 years in private practice, Nadia helps clients with U.S. Food and Drug Administration application processes, emergency use authorization approvals, Medicare and Medicaid services coverage issues, state corporate practice of medicine regulations and issues arising during the COVID-19 era and beyond. And I have to say before we begin, that's just one part of her practice. The totality of her experiences could probably fill the bios of 10 additional lawyers. We have a lot to talk about. Nadia Delahousie, welcome to Discover Lafayette. Jan, it is such a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm just, you know, we've been talking off uh, before we started here. We have so much in common, and uh, we really met through our children. You're, you've been an active mother with your children at the Academy of the Sacred Heart and Episcopal School of Acadiana, and that's where we had the pleasure of meeting. So yes. They're, they're growing up, aren't they? <laughs> they're often <laughs> on their own now. Yeah, yeah. So we're here on a rainy day, um, mid to later August 2021, and COVID has brought a lot of issues to the surface. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is you were an early pioneer in the whole telemedicine field. I mean, in 1997, was anybody thinking about telemedicine, about using the internet to uh, treat people? <laughs> in, in 1997, when we launched a teleradiology network, we really didn't even have a full internet. Right. Um, we had to get a T line, T one line mm-hmm. in our home. Because people were using analog yes, services, right? Absolutely. Dial up. Yes. It was all dial up. Mm-hmm. And you had PAC systems. So to see how the technology has progressed 
is it just blows my mind. It really does. Would you talk about that? Like you're talking about helping radiologists look at films where they, you know, it could be seen anywhere, right? Is Correct. that what the teleradiology was? Um, you know, my interest in telemedicine predated my interest in teleradiology. I um, I happened to marry a, a radiologist who had a similar vision, and on our first date, he mentioned that he was interested in starting a telemedicine practice. And I thought, oh my, yeah. <laughs> um, I think he's my How? husband. <laughs> no, actually, we, we kind of married over a business plan. Um, the good news is we're still best friends and the business oh. was successful. Well, the that's bad good. news is we're not married anymore, but we're great. You know, yeah. uh, I still do all of his legal work. And, and but, it, but the point is, you know, my interest really was, I mean, he was the first person that I met. My parents were kind of tired of talking, me talking about telemedicine because my father's an OBGYN in a rural area. Mm-hmm. And ever since I was a little girl, you know, he was delivering 600 plus babies a year. Wow. Um, he was the only OBGYN in, in a large span of, of mm-hmm. rural America, you know, Louisiana. In the Crowley Absolutely. region. Yeah. yeah. Crowley, Jennings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was before we really had a lot of, I mean, many of these were French speaking, no mm-hmm. prenatal care. So he was getting calls that, you know, you got calls or knocks on the door from the police when somebody would show up at the, um, we didn't have oh. at that time, we're talking about in the 70s and mm-hmm. 60, you know, late 60s, 70s, um, just, you know, somebody, an emergency. And there the weren't hospital. many providers oh, no. to be found. No, daddy was, um, my father was the, at one point, the only OBGYN in our area. So um, he started with a partner, and then there were some health issues. Mm-hmm. And then he brought in a partner when I was in, uh, I guess, close to high school. That's a tough career. I mean, it's so needed, but many babies are born in the middle of the night, right? Absolutely. So he was on 24-7 call. Exactly. And, and I remember thinking, there's got to be a way. And I remember being fascinated when, you know, when, when we first landed on the moon, and we had video, and we were able to see this. And I thought, there's got to be a way that my father can f- treat patients from home. Mm-hmm. And I was always interested in kind of technology, science fiction, um, love Star Trek, and, and just... I didn't know really what it was going to look like, mm-hmm. but I knew that there was going to be a day where we could provide better medicine and provide a better communication between the doctor and the patient. Right. Uh, and, and that was one of my reasons for going to, um, actually, I, I went to a JDMS program, and I was going to specialize in communications law. Okay. And I worked for the FCC, and I was really interested on the technology side of of, of, of healthcare, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, and at that time, we were looking at fiber optics. Everything that I learned <laughs> in in that time frame has been, you know, has become obsolete. Um, fiber optics was the dream. It was, yeah. And that was during the time frame when Fox was going to become the fourth major channel. We had ABC, yeah. CBS, and NBC. It's hard for our kids to realize how rapidly, absolutely, not just communication, but all delivery of services has evolved. And the whole, I mean, just in 20 years, it's a different, totally different world. Indeed. And I mean, the whole regulatory issues about mm-hmm. monopolies and cable industry and whether or not, you know, AT&T could have any control over editorial. Um, and, and then you look, you know, fairness doctrine and the mm-hmm. media First Amendment issues, and it, it's just t- t- today. It's it's hard to believe that that we're in the same sort of realm when it comes right. to communication. It seems though, um, as rapidly as things have changed, government regulations, and I know we're going to get into some of that. And I'm thinking about my podcast in particular as you were talking. TV is regulated. Uh, the networks, 
and I guess cable to some extent, but things like podcast, you talk about First Amendment issues. I mean, we're not really regulated, so we could be cursing up a storm and being really inappropriate, which I know a lot of them are, and we don't have the same regulatory oversight yet that these other institutions do. And I know medicine is the same. Nadia, we're here to talk about some of the telehealth issues, but the government moves rather slowly, I guess with good reason. They want to be sure they're doing it right. Mm -hmm. But yet, again, COVID has kind of shown the light on sometimes things have to move quickly. And it's difficult to catch up. Well, it's interesting from um, a growth standpoint because the technology outpaced the regulatory climate for telemedicine. Um, every year when we go to the American Telemedicine Association Conference, and, and they're celebrating their, I think, 28th year now, um, and I was one of the original you know, members, I think there were 50 of us, you would, you know, we, no one knew anything about in the whole, you know, outside of this little group, what we were trying to accomplish. You had one from each state. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They probably were just from a few areas of the country. And, and, yeah, we were kind of just considered to be dreamist, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and the real push at that time was to try to get reimbursement regulation and general acceptance within the community that, like it or not, physician shortages exist mm-hmm. and will continue to, and you know, to develop. And um, and grow, and we were seeing that way back, you know. How far back was that? This is 27, 28 years ago. Oh, yeah, right when you were out of school. And, like and I was early. seeing it in rural southwest Louisiana because mm-hmm. my father couldn't recruit anybody. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, reimbursement was a big issue. Um, more and more insurance carriers were negotiating deals with hospitals and providers, so reimbursement rates were going down. And, you know, it used to be pay for service. You wouldn't have insurance. You just would go and you, yeah. for my father, he was an OBGYN and it was a flat fee mm-hmm. to have a baby and you mm-hmm. just paid it. Um, and it was affordable. And then, you know, during, so when I, when we started with the teleradiology, it seemed like the easiest platform at that time for, for me as a lawyer, because radiology does not involve a real interaction with the patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it was, and at that time, there were some PAC systems in place. These are the old companies that had engineered um, technology that, you know, it was all dial-up, that could deliver films to a radiologist. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, when it really hit home when Tom, Tom Vreeland is my, my ex-husband and a wonderful person and a wonderful radiologist, he started it at UMC. And at that time... UMC, well, UHC now, mm-hmm. had boxes and boxes of just x-rays that had not been looked at for months. Oh, my God. And if you recall in the days when we were children, radiologists didn't work on the weekend. You would get an x-ray, mm-hmm. and it was read a couple of days later, and there was no real urgency to it. And when you're dealing with stroke and yeah, you cancer, know, cancer yeah. it, it, you just can't sit. And, and, and there was just this horror of looking at these films and seeing cancer and progression and realizing that I don't even know if this person's still alive. Right. You know? Was and it like that, you think, at the mainstream hospitals? I mean, I think UHC, that was everywhere. It yes. was. Yes. I, it, it wasn't for, just for because it was a no, charity no, 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 type no, no. of hospital. Uh, no, no, no. <clears throat> this was, um, it was just, it was, you know, there's 
um, a shortage of radiologists, many would would get off. I mean, you didn't you didn't have access at night to mm-hmm. images, so you could we didn't have twenty four seven radiologists. So you'd read the films when you read the films, and the standard of care at that point was very different than it is today. Mm-hmm. Today it's real time. That I wouldn't mean, be malpractice back then. Oh, that no, would just be absolutely just not. The way it was. That was the way it was. Yeah, and. Because I'm thinking today, oh boy, if somebody had to wait two months to see if their lungs were filled with cancer. And, 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 you know, that's a great example of the beauty of telemedicine Mm -hmm. and and on the end of teleradiology. I mean, there's always good and bad, but it has has increased and bettered the standard of care. So when we started, um, the vision was that we would provide real-time read and it would, we had offices in Australia and, and in Germany mm-hmm. because of the time difference. Mm-hmm. All were American um, trained and they were licensed in every state. What so was that the name was, of your company? Was that Nighthawk? Well, it, it, was, it was originally, our name was Nighthawk, um, as was another group out of Quarter Lane. Mm-hmm. And the, the two companies were physician owned mm-hmm. and we, um, we merged. And then it became Nighthawk. And then our division, we, we focused on the day. Um, Tom decided to stay in the States, and we provided 24-7 coverage. So physicians around the world could Correct. Uh, read those films. Well, They're we, not even films. I guess they're images. Images, yeah. every mm-hmm. kind of image you could imagine. Mm-hmm. And at this point in time, just in the, that short span between, I guess, 1997 and 2004, mm-hmm. when the company went public... The um, the technology had had grown in advance to the point where it was almost instantaneous. Were people shocked by this? I mean, this was a very cutting edge yes. technology. It, it it was so accepted and, and so embraced because radiologists were tired. They didn't want to work nights and weekends. Mm-hmm. Hospital systems were thrilled to have care that could be rendered 24-7. Yeah, in other time zones. Absolutely. In real time. And everybody recognized that it was going to provide better care to the community, mm-hmm. to the patient most importantly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it was just putting together all the policies, procedures, and protocols. And I mean, at that time, doctors weren't even, you know, we always documented, we sent the records to the hospital to make sure that it was implemented into the patient's chart. Yeah, I... I I'm a strong believer in if you're going to do something, do it right. And uh, I think that's what enabled Nighthawk to become a publicly traded company because mm-hmm. when you go through that process, you're audited and they go through everything. And everything that Tom did was just exceptional. Mm-hmm. He's an exceptional radiologist and he's a. I want to meet him. <laughs> yeah, he, he really is. I mean, he's he. Um, I mean, I, I may have done a lot a lot of the legal end of it, but he certainly was the spearhead when it came mm-hmm. to the way medicine should be practiced. And I give him a tremendous amount of credit for the you know mm-hmm. the company that we we developed and created. Well you were both visionaries because this was really way it was like Star Star Wars kind of thing. It was, track, it was a lot you know? of fun. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of fun. So fast forward to today with COVID and I know in the past uh, year and a half the telehealth visits, similar to the teleradiology, they became very necessary. So people wouldn't be in doctor's offices exposed to other sick people. And it seems that everybody overnight realized, wow, if I'm sick, I'm really better off in my study using my wearable, letting my doctor read my vitals and whatever else goes on. You can talk more about that. But it's the same thing about the reimbursement. I know that 
during the early stages of COVID, it became clear that providers needed to be reimbursed and telehealth wasn't really covered traditionally. I'm sure just as teleradiology, you had to break down those barriers. It was the same, right? I mean, that was a big hurdle for, for mm-hmm. even psychologists and others to get reimbursed for telehealth visits. Yes, uh, it, it really varied and it's grown and a lot of reimbursement was in place at the time of COVID. But between you know 2004 and COVID, a tremendous amount of telemedicine has been integrated. Um, Their I've traditional insurance. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, not put aside, the, I'm just talking about the service lines. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked with major hospital settings, integrating telestroke, tele-ICU, telecardiology. I mean, um, Oshner, you know, Louisiana's mm-hmm. largest hospital system, has a tremendous platform, Oshner Anywhere. And, and Oshner got into telestroke at least 15, 17 years ago. What is that, Nadia? Telestroke is when you have... Um, a rural area, it could be rural or urban, it doesn't matter. You have somebody that comes into an ER that's showing signs of a stroke, and the ER doctor or nurse immediately gets a, tele, a teleneurologist on what we call a card. It's a video, mm-hmm. it's, it's just like FaceTime. And they just the, eyeball the, the patient. Well, to- actually, it's even better. You have the software. Um, there's a number of amazing software applications that allows the actual doctor to treat as if he's putting his hands or her hands on the patient. They can do um, they can do they do CT scans. They do all the uh-huh. scans at the, the emergency room, and then once those scans are uploaded, it's an interactive platform. So the uh, the provider at the the rural location and the tele neurologist are able to work simultaneously mm-hmm. in the treatment of the patient. And, and those three hours, I know, oh, after yeah. a stroke are just critical. For- well, the, the sooner you can administer TPA, if the patient mm-hmm. is, in fact, a candidate for TPA, the better. Mm-hmm. So we're able to determine whether or not TPA is appropriate, whether or not the rural area has the ability to to provide and administer that TPA, and if not, the closest setting that could. These have been reimbursed by these types of services They've been reimbursed by Medicare, Medicaid, and insurance Um, companies? CMS has been the slowest when it comes to reimbursement. That's the Medicaid and Medicare. Yes, but certainly at the the time of COVID, anything that was occurring in the hospital system was reimbursable. Mm -hmm. Um, It was more the home setting that was not, uh, and certain other types of service lines. But the main core type of treatment was was definitely in Mm -hmm. place. We also had a lot of parity litigation that the American Telemedicine Association had advocated and advanced, and that required states, well, many states have state laws on the book, and Louisiana's one that mandates that if an insurance carrier covers a face-to-face consult, then they must cover a telehealth consult at a certain percentage. Louisiana is 75%. Many people don't even know, many insurance carriers don't even realize that under the law, they're required to reimburse. But only at 75%. Unless they have a negotiated fee with mm-hmm. the provider. Mm-hmm. So that's the minimum that they're going to get. You know, But still, 75% of what an inpatient yeah. consult would be is, is better than nothing. And if you can save lives and... <laughs> Yes. Get the patients treated. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The hard the burden and, and the hurdle and the expense that comes from integrating a telehealth system is that you have to be licensed in the state where the physician 
is practicing as well as where the patient resides. So it's fine if you're going to do just Mm -hmm. in-state, but if you're going into the rural areas of America, then you have to be licensed. That doctor has to be licensed in every state. And that licensure process, it went from when I was getting Tom licensed in 50 states, it's like, who wants licenses in 50 states? Of course, yeah, sure, pay us the money. Yeah, you've got yearly dues and all kinds of expenses to go with that. But you don't have um, the scrutiny. Uh, now it's it's extremely difficult to get licensed. Mm-hmm. It can take some some month, some states, and you know we have a telehealth, um, a telemedicine license that the board provides here in Louisiana, mm-hmm. but it can still take four and five months to get licensed. So if you've got a rural patient, like you said, that may be having a stroke, and honestly, a, a specialist is what they need, and they're across the line, right? That guy could or woman could treat that patient, but may not get reimbursed because they're not licensed. In no, the, they can't even treat it. It's they it's, can't even it, treat it. It's illegal. illegal. Yes, so they could it's lose a practice their license. Of law. I mean, it's the practice of medicine uh-huh. without a license in that state. And there's some cases that are key examples. There was a suit in Colorado years oh, ago people where psychiatrists. Yeah, it's always when you have a bad outcome. But it's yeah. psychiatrist treating one of his patients that went off to college and the you know, ended up having a bad result and um, not only criminal, but civil suit was brought against him. Did you know early on that you wanted to focus, I know you do other types of litigation, but you really seem to focus on the medical fields. Did you know early on that this was your calling? No, (laughs) no, no, no. Um, When I went off to college, law was the furthest thing from my mind. What were you thinking? Were you thinking about a doctor, being a doctor or something? No, actually I was a theater major. Um, I I was always interested in theater and advertising, and I was always on the kind of solution end of things. I liked to, I liked art. I liked problem solving. I worked for an ad agency. Um, I loved technology. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what I was going to do ultimately, but I look back and I think, you know, theater was probably the best training. Yeah, because as a litigator. Acting. Acting is, I mean, who's the only audience <laughs> I have is I have the judge and the jury. You're right, though. It's like, you know, I tell opposing counsel, we can agree to disagree because it's really, it's irrelevant what we think about this case. Yeah. It's really only what the judge and the jury thinks. Mm-hmm. And so much of it is interpersonal communication skills, which yeah. is what I tell my kids. Just, you know, go into college with an open mind. Just, my parents never told us what to study. Mm-hmm. They just wanted us to be happy. And all three of their daughters ended up lawyers. Isn't that something? Yeah. And your mom is a well-known, you know, she yeah. was mayor of Crowley and just a beautiful family. Well, she was always a very strong woman. And the one mm-hmm. message my parents taught us all was that, you know, there is no what such word as impossible. Everything is possible, you know, and you can be anything you want. Yeah. And I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I knew whatever it was, it was going to be great. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and it made my mind it was going to be great, whatever that was. And so I didn't tell my parents I was going to law school until I got in and, and I was in Boston and I didn't have a place to live and I couldn't find a place to live. And then I was like, oh. Maybe I should tell yeah, them what I'm doing. With my bags. <laughs> my, my sister was at Boston College at the time, so I stayed with her until she, um, until I was able to locate an apartment. But I was so insistent that I wasn't going to go to law school mm-hmm. um, that it was almost a joke when I did, but my sister was Isabella, the one that yeah. I know you know, um, has had was in Columbia at the time mm-hmm. in New York, and she was the one that always wanted to go to law school. And of course, my father, being a doctor, was really no fan of lawyers. 
no, that's one of his disdainful yeah. school. So, to put it mildly. So he loved the, that, the idea that I was going to be, you know, interested in healthcare. The deal was if you go to law school, you can't be a plaintiff's malpractice attorney. And so you made him proud. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. represent the industry, the, I, the providers. I, I think my father would have been fine with whatever we did. But yes, mm-hmm. I think he's proud of his three daughters. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you got that in. Kelly's here, my daughter. And um, it, it's scary being 22, not quite sure what you're going to do, you know. Um, and you never, I, I never thought I'd be a lawyer either, Nadia. I mean, it was just a fluke thing, and you learn so much, and you can help so many people. So I'm glad you got that in. On that note, while we brought up Isabella, I'd like to pause and reflect back on an interview we did with Isabella um, last year early. Isabella is a force in her own right, and while she's also an attorney, we focused during the interview on her mindfulness management of her diagnosis of stage four lung cancer. Um, Isabella is an active Ironman competitor, marathon runner, and just force of nature. But she spoke of accepting the cancer and coexisting with it and not being at war with it. And uh, at the time of our interview, Isabella was finishing up that bike um, expedition across the U.S. to raise awareness of stage four lung cancer. You can find Isabella excuse me, Isabella Delahousie's interview and many others at discoverlafayette.net. Let's take a listen. The one thing I would just add when you talk about the war, because part of the messaging about um, my own cancer and, and the way I think like sort of the mindfulness uh-huh. teaches you is to be very um, conscious of the words you use and what words create sort of negative, um, stressful imagery and which words you can replace them with that sort of can say the same thing. And war but, is um, kind of negative. Huh? Yeah. And I've been really trying to, like, I tell people I'm not, you know, I'm just trying to, to coexist with my cancer. I don't mm. need to kill it. <laughs> I don't, you know, I just need to, we, we need to follow the rules. <laughs> it, right. it can't progress. <laughs> you know, it lets me live my life. I'm, I'm not trying to kill it off. Um, I, we just need to live together and I, I think that um, you know with with COVID-19 it's really about um, managing it's learning you know to live safely and and with health I mean there's so many positive lessons that can come out of this whether it's simple as hand washing and, and hygiene to um, being more uh, you know conscious about our underlying health conditions weight um, blood pressure, you know, things we might be able to do right. to help ourselves just be healthier so that when, you know, things like this happen, you're you're healthier going into it, which usually leads to a better right. outcome on the other side. Welcome back to Discover Lafayette with Nadia Dalahousie. So I want to kind of jump in to where we are now in 2021, you really are looked at as an expert around the country and the issues that are coming up. And you help major clients navigate the regulatory system. You help clients if there's malpractice issues. I know you help hospitals look at their procedures Mm -hmm. to make sure that they implement and maintain best practices. So much of what you do is involved with providers giving us the best service 
and the best care that they can. If you want to talk about some of that and some of the highlights, maybe, of, of your practice. Sure. Um, well, since COVID, and, you know, I, I guess my father always said, you never want to miss a um, great opportunity from a disaster. Uh, you know, I mean, so if you're going to find a, a silver lining in COVID, not that there's much to find, but it's that the world now knows what telemedicine is. Mm-hmm. Um, all the advocacy that we did on the Hill didn't do nearly what, COVID has done in terms of reimbursement awareness and usage, Um, and also embracement by the whole community, the medical community, the the nursing, uh, the healthcare community as a whole. So, um, so that that has definitely been huge. The other great thing that happened with COVID early on was that CMS lifted the regulatory mandates that you have to be licensed in the state where the patient's located. So that enabled doctors to provide care across borders mm-hmm. um, because everybody was in need. And as we saw in Lafayette today um, with Oshner, the bringing in of outside you know, healthcare providers because of our physician shortage mm-hmm. um, to help with COVID patients. Is that just for COVID, those restrictions have been lifted or will that stay in place? No. Um, that, well, it's only in place during the, 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 this emergency okay. order. What will happen after, we're not really sure. Mm -hmm. But certainly what it has done, it it has shown the benefit of being able to provide care to people in need. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never felt that telemedicine should ever be a replacement for hands-on medicine, ever. Um, In fact, there's a time and place for telemedicine, and, and it's important to recognize that not all care can be rendered remotely. So, um... You know, it's an adjunct to care. I am hopeful that in my lifetime, we'll, we'll, I'll get rid of the tele and it'll just be health care. It'll be a dif- different form of delivery of care. Mm-hmm. It's just remote. You know, when we think about work from home now, it's not just the healthcare system now. We're looking at people that have been working remotely and doing a fine job. Mm-hmm. You know, do we actually have to be at the location to provide, you know, a service? And, and the answer to that is no, um, because of the, the technology that we have which is really what I want to focus on now when you talk about what you know, policies, procedures, care, enhancement of care. What I, what I love about telehealth, and this really started pre-COVID, but it has certainly escalated because of COVID, is the um, awareness of the wearables and the way that you can utilize telemedicine yeah, right. in, a, in a way Telehealth. I'm going to make that distinction because telemedicine is really a provider-based, you know, doctor-patient. Telehealth is a huge area of remote patient monitoring, um, educational healthcare, um, management of diabetes, just support systems that hospitals provide, and that has a whole different set of regulatory mandates. So it's not as regulated as telemedicine per se, um, but it is all regulated for sure, yeah. um, and it is being reimbursed. But what I think COVID, you know, and, and, and the, the whole, the, the area that I find most intriguing, and of course, given my interest in technology, it makes sense, is data analytics and, and the, mm-hmm. um, what we call AI, augmented intelligence or artificial intelligence. And it's machine learning, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we're teaching machines how to read um, and, and how to use, and, and it's really played out beautifully in teleradiology because certain certain films can be read better by um, by the software than it can by the human eye. Wow. And 
It like will, a fingerprint. You know, yes. it's just the, the computer can pick up, it, it, the software it can up, pick up yeah. the variances from one uh, scan to the next. Yes. And, and clinical history is always going to be critical. So I don't think, and I hope that there's never a day where we replace computers with doctors. But it's certainly from a from a teleradiologist standpoint, it helps enhance what that doctor can do because it's going to warn, it's going to highlight, mm-hmm. you know, and say differential diagnosis maybe blah 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 blah. Get blah. it to look close. Get the doctor right. to look closer at that. And, and that's true um, in other areas as well. There's a tremendous amount of data, data analytics and, and AI and machine mm-hmm. learning in all of medicine today, um, and and the data that we put in. Mm-hmm. Um, that is collected, you know, and there's some controversy over privacy issues, but it's all meant to enhance the quality of care that's rendered. I'm thinking about with all the wearables we have, mm-hmm. I've got on my Apple Watch, Kelly's got on a Fitbit, I'm mm-hmm. sure you have mm-hmm. your own wearables when you exercise and do everything. You know, just to have that monitored where if I had diabetes, let's say, or my or high blood pressure, and I wouldn't even have to call the doctor, they would know Yes, Jan's heartbeat is off or, you know, this has been an escalating trend or whatever. I'm sure there's so many things I don't even know that mm-hmm. can be monitored by a wearable. Oh, pacemakers, everything's mm-hmm. being monitored. Um, when you're in surgery, you probably have somebody monitoring outside of a, out of a hospital setting all of your vital signs to make sure that there's no abnormality. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's amazing how much is being monitored, but the wearables are really, uh, and, and the wearables have been around for a while. Uh, I've been going to ATA conferences almost every year, and for at least the last 15, I, I, I would get you know into, we, we would always, they would have an exhibit hall, and all of the vendors would have their technology out, and you could basically test it, and they would give you, you know, samples, whatever. And um, we had, we have things that people can wear that would, elderly people can wear in the home setting that show whether or not they've fallen. It, you know, I'm not talking about something that you I've wear around and your. I can't get up. Yeah, <laughs> you wear, wear around your neck that you mm-hmm. press, and and you know, and it alerts. This is a this is a, a shirt that has software that what? is yes. Really? These are these are these are undergarments that can pick up whether or not you've oh. fallen, and it and it will automatically alert your healthcare provider. Um, so there are things that I don't even think in the midst of COVID the public really fully appreciates, um, and and. You know, the goal for me, and I think one of the things that has really played out with COVID is the importance of being able to be cared for at home. Yeah. I want my parents to be able to live their entire life in their home setting. And treat them with respect. Absolutely. And, yeah. and when I talk to people in the nursing you know, home, mm-hmm. homes, many of them um, would go in once their, their husband passed and their children were worried that they were going to fall. They were fall risks. And we can monitor people in the home mm-hmm. setting remotely without even having a sitter have to just sit there because yeah. people don't want that invasiveness. Um, and you can turn off the monitors. You know, you don't have to watch mm-hmm. them 24-7. But the goal, I think, is to be able to provide care in the home setting as long as possible. And, of course, with COVID, given the, the inability to be with the loved ones that we have that are in nursing facilities, I think it has made people think twice about, mm-hmm. you know, what happens if this breaks out again? Right. A lot of people I know have brought their loved ones home when COVID, we had that short phase of COVID where it actually got better. I know you know a lot more about this than I do, but from what I understand, Louisiana is one of those states where really they're nursing home friendly. You know, mm-hmm. the 
the reimbursement and all this. We really focus on nursing homes, and most seniors do not want to go to a nursing home, and it's not good for them. We saw with my own mother-in-law when Betty Swift was moved from her home because she was falling and, you know, starting to have issues. When she was moved to the assisted living and then it ended up in the nursing home area, it just threw her off. Yeah, She really got disoriented, and then it seemed like things, would, they went downhill. Maybe they would have anyway, but it seemed like it really, she just, she didn't really adjust well, and it was sad. She had had a full life, and it just was sad. It is sad. And, 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 you know, I certainly don't want to, there's certainly a time and place where certainly. certain people need to be mm-hmm. in a nursing facility because they can't be cared for adequately in the home setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are lots of people that are moving to, into assisted living facilities simply because they don't have the ability to have someone care for them in the home setting. Mm-hmm. And I think that now that CMS has agreed to reimburse at the originating, uh, the home is now an originating site, and people may not appreciate what that means. But COVID has that is the most probably significant change that has taken place um, up until up until COVID. Even if you wanted to have a consult with a doctor, you had to go to a physician's office or to a hospital setting. So you have to put a ninety-some-year-old person yeah. into a car and transport them. And some of these people are bedbound. So it, it, it was not a possible, mm-hmm. you know, now, could the care be rendered? Of course, the doctor just wouldn't get reimbursed. So it was a reimbursement issue. But once reimbursement, you know, a lot of medicine is business. And when reimbursement is there, you know, typically the willingness to provide the mm-hmm. care is going to be mm-hmm. increased. Now, recently, one of our neighbors across the street, I, I saw two doctors coming out, and uh, he was rendering a home health visit, which mm-hmm. I don't think I've seen. <laughs> you know? Isn't that great? It was wonderful. And he had a resident with him from UHC, but they were visiting our neighbor. Um, and uh, is that something you see much? Do you, I mean, are, are doctors I'm seeing making more those and home more. calls? Yes, absolutely. It's like going back to the day. Um, yeah. I told you about, you know. He wasn't I, smoking though, like in the 50s. You know, they'd always exactly. show the doctors. With, <laughs> I smoke Lucky yeah. Strikes too, you know. Right, right, right. No, we're living a healthier lifestyle for yeah. sure, I think, as Americans. <laughs> and I'm referring um, just back to the day doctors did yeah. make house calls because right. it was a different world. So. It is. And I think this, the COVID has brought back a little mm-hmm. bit of that. Um, doctors, in my opinion, have always been, you know, putting their lives on the line every day. And, and they're bad outcomes sometimes, but no one, well, I don't want to say no one, but I certainly can attest from having a father that's a doctor that that day is not a good day for him either. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody wants to see a patient die. Nobody wants to see a patient, um, you know, that has any kind of less than perfect outcome. So, um, you know, doctors, nurses, healthcare providers have always been just a very high on my list. That said, they the government has scrutinized them in a way that have, they have not scrutinized any other profession. And you know, from the whole stark anti-kickback, the ability to go into a physician's office and say, "Okay, we want to do an audit of your of your bills and determine whether or not the services you rendered were medically necessary." Wow, can you imagine as a lawyer if somebody said every file? Let's yeah. open them up. Yeah, did you really have to do that memorandum? Did you really have to put mm-hmm. an associate on this file? I mean, you know, and and claim that you false billed, and that you're entitled to reimbursement plus, you know, mm-hmm. criminal. 
charges are being brought against you. Oh, we had a major case here you yes. know, 10 years ago with a physician that was looked at, and yeah, that may jail. have been necessary. He did go to jail, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, some of the care that may have been life-saving. We don't, you know, I I, I know which case you're referencing, but um, but the point is, there, there are going to be bad apples in mm-hmm. every profession. Every profession, yeah. And in, in the midst of COVID, they came out with... I, in the, DOG, DOJ came out with just this headline, a hundred and some white telemedicine providers have been, you know, have charges against them for, for fraud. And, and it really, you know, I, I just thought, why do you have to put telemedicine? You know, it, it's, it's provider fraud. Whether it's for mm-hmm. fraud that was rendered, it was fail, It was basically rendering care, billing for care that was never rendered. That happens whether you're in an office or whether you're providing it in a mm-hmm. remote setting. The problem is when you reimburse for telephone calls, then that just makes it an easy, you know, way to commit what the government may consider to be fraud. Mm-hmm. You know, was that necessary or did you overuse the the, the device, you know, right. whatever it may be, it could be monitoring, whatever. So in your practice, you're really partners with a lot of the providers. You help guide them. I do. If they're sued, mm-hmm. I know you're there to to defend them, but you also probably have to provide proactive guidance oh, to help them avoid these pitfalls. Because a lot of times as a patient, we may want to see the doctor more than they think they need to see us, but we still want access. Oh, and I, I can see some of this being questioned later. But if you're sick or worried about your child or whatever, there might be a lot of telehealth visits, you know, that may not look appropriate. But oh, when I first meet with a business, you know, I'm a conservative person. I believe in in smart, slow growth. And many people have come to me during COVID and say, said, you know, I want to really jump on the bandwagon. I want to integrate or telehealth, internet or telemedicine practice across all states and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, look, take it slow. Let's integrate it into your existing practice. Mm-hmm. If you want to go one state at a time, do that. But it's something that is already very, very well established. You're, you're kind of late in the game, frankly, even though we think of it as new because of COVID. Telehealth and telemedicine has been around for many, many years. Uh, you know, we, the membership at the ATA five, six years ago was in the thousands. It's an international organization. Wow. It's one From of the that largest. 50 oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we're not talking about an area where there is, you know, there are new players. The technology is there, the platforms are there. Like I said, Oshner Anywhere is a platform that pre- predated COVID, mm-hmm. but they've been providing telemedicine. Um, to rural areas in the in Louisiana and certain parts of Mississippi for years, but it was just under the radar back in 2017. You know Mike Dozier at um, Oshner Lafayette General. He's their IT guy. We put on a meeting for Upper Lafayette, a, a local group, and uh, we were all shocked to see a doctor be able to like examine me. I was the guinea pig, mm-hmm. but um, we did it over at Oakbourne, and that's how I got to know Mike and, and the team. And that was all news to us, mm-hmm. regular people. I just had never heard of that. And I thought, wow, they can look in my ear. <laughs> there was a nurse yes, there absolutely. and see everything on the the monitor. And that, like I'm saying, I, I didn't realize how, how this had been yeah. uh, I, I, in place. Honestly, I, I think that the vision that I see in the near future is that, I mean, I've been having integrating telehealth in the occupational setting for years. Um, I see every school campus. I see every prison Every um, every employment, you know, 
office or every every place of employment having what we call a kiosk, a tele, telemedicine mm-hmm. kiosk. And essentially is just a private room where you go and you have a telepresenter and you get on a screen with whatever doctor is the doctor mm-hmm. that you need to address whatever ailment you're experiencing at that moment. And you go in and, and, and that care is rendered. And if you need to go to the hospital, you go to the hospital. And, and that's a really important distinction is for these doctors to realize that if you can't or don't feel comfortable, or it could be a nurse, whoever it is on the other end of the video, if you don't feel comfortable doing a full, you know, a full exam on this person, or you don't think you're capable mm-hmm. or you're concerned, there is definitely a need to go to the hospital. Um, but you know, it's to eliminate. There, there probably ninety percent of ER visits are unnecessary. That's what I understand. And people just show up over and over, right? What yes. do they call them? Frequent flyers. Yeah. I mean, I know they don't yeah. mean to disrespect, but they there are certain people that yeah. use the ER as their what's fast, you know, primary and, care provider. And, and in, in honesty, I mean, it's almost impossible to get an immediate. Um, mean, you know, if if you need an internist or you. You have a urinary tract infection, unless you go to an urgent care, you're not you're not going to get a, an appointment with the physician because of the physician shortages. People don't realize that we are really at a crisis because of reimbursement rates, because of the regulatory climate. People are not going into medicine the way, and and just in the past, medicine doctors were held to a certain level of respect and esteem, mm-hmm. and that's been somewhat lost. You know, there's an assumption that. I mean, the med mal claims are just ridiculous. In our industry, we don't ever very rarely see a legal malpractice claim. So um, fortunately, Louisiana has a med mal cap. But when I first meet with a doctor, my my message to that doctor is, look, I want to keep you out of trouble. I want you not to need me, okay? (laughs) I'm not trying to talk myself out of work here, but I want to set you up in a smart way, and I want you to implement with, you know, cross every mm-hmm. T, dot every I, because if you don't, you can get into trouble. I chaired medical malpractice panels as an attorney, and the attorney that chairs those are just a neutral party, just kind of managing the, the process and not getting involved, not, getting, not giving advice to the parties. And now John, my yes. husband, does it also. But I remember reading way back, this was back in the 2000s, and then maybe up until about 2012 I did it, that so many physicians don't realize how their their bedside manner, um, just the way that they interact with the patient, can really affect a lawsuit possibility. Because mistakes do happen all the time. And even if no mistake happens, sometimes patients just don't do well and they pass away. And it's hard for the family to, you know, to, to get a grip on that. And if the doctor has been there to follow up and had a kind manner. I mean, at least what I read. I don't know if you've seen this, but is that part of the training that there's certain things Absolutely. you need to do? That the touch of the family to let them know you're there. You know. You know, it used to be um, years and years ago. I would listen to CLEs when I was a baby lawyer, and they would say, you know, if you mess up, just try to avoid, stay away, don't say anything that will be used against you. Well, we have, I'm sorry, legislation. We we allow doctors and we encourage doctors to keep that relationship ongoing to show that you care because mm-hmm. doctors do care. I know they, they care. They don't want to yeah. be told. But they're scared. Yeah. about doing the wrong thing. Yeah, they they don't know how to handle it. And there's nothing more calming and I think soothing and healing than 
when my hospital systems, because I typically represent the hospitals, but the hospitals employ the doctors. So we have policies and we work with the doctors in this process and we would never ask a doctor to do something the doctor's not wanting to do. But many times in a claim that's filed, all it takes is a meeting and a simply, you know, I was not the cause of this death, but I am so very, very mm-hmm. sorry for the outcome. You know, I have a case literally with a hundred. It's a hundred. A woman that's a hundred and three years old, and I, I think John may be. Your Did husband she die? Be, I mean, yeah, she, she may died, have died from being a hundred because you know she she was in a hospice bed, the only bed in our hospital, and she couldn't be brought home. She wasn't stable enough to transfer to another bed in the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 the family sued because they wanted her home, and you know she wouldn't have made it home. She died in the hospital. And we, you know, it was one of those situations where we just met with the family and we explained, look, this is the only bed in the hospital. It's a hospice doctor. And we were trying to transition and we we're trying to help mm-hmm. bring some peace to this family. But death is hard. It's hard to accept. You know, it yeah. is. Yeah. And it's easy to blame. And that's one of the things that I've realized, you know, sp- you know especially with, you know, Isabel um, never being sick in her life, a non smoker, athlete with stage four lung. And you just want to say, how, yeah. does, how do we miss this? How do we miss this? Mm-hmm. The reality is it doesn't matter. We are where we are today. And every day is a blessing. Mm-hmm. And we just have to live it. Yeah. You That's know? beautiful. Yeah, she is a great example of, of um, accepting life on its own terms. And she's brave. She shows up. And I think just a lot of people that deal with healthcare providers, you know, they're scared. And when things don't go right, it, it really is so easy to blame someone yeah. that maybe had nothing to do with what actually happened. But um, do the I know that a lot of doctors, as we were joking about earlier, don't care for lawyers, but they really need the guidance they do. that you provide. I think that doctors appreciate anyone that's going to help them, you know, do the, the right thing. And sometimes it takes, you know, sitting down because there are mistakes. And sometimes you just have to say, look... You know, this could have been handled a little differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it just, I'm one that went to law school because I believed in justice. And I'm not, you know, I try to reach, and I think I get along with most plaintiffs' attorneys, I try to reach a fair outcome. And if there's a wrong that's been done that we're aware of, we as, you know, I as an attorney and most of the hospital systems I work with try to do the right thing. And we resolve it. Um, we strongly defend cases where we did not commit malpractice, and you know those we we typically do so in a very friendly way. But um, you know it's it's important to let a doctor know when the doctor's done wrong, uh, because there's a learning opportunity. And there and you were mentioning bedside manner. There are a few doctors that I've represented, and they've been th- in three or four cases at once. And the only common, you know, commonality between all of them is that they didn't have good bedside manner. Really? The care that was rendered was exceptional, uh-huh. but they were just not, yeah. you know, they didn't give that loving touch. They were like, "Get out of bed and walk." Yeah, we've all had doctors <laughs> like, like that. Like, you know, get you out know? of bed. You just had a baby. You have to walk. You got to get out. I got to feel like it. <laughs> you know, you're gonna get a blood clot. And and some doctors need, you know, to just in our world take a breath. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Maybe we just Isabel you know, can help them. You know, just yeah. meditate on it for a minute. <laughs> exactly. How you deliver that message is critical. Mm-hmm. You know, come on, let's go for a walk. Versus, 
get out of bed, you fat pig. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but the point is, you know, there's just, and I, and I tell this to my kids, whether you're in law, whether you're in medicine, mm-hmm. how you communicate is going to really play a huge part in how you yeah. do in life. Well, it's emotional intelligence, reading, exactly. reading the person that you're we you talk know, about machine with. intelligence. Well, machines can't talk, yeah. <laughs> you know, the way humans can. Uh-huh. And, and and that's the hope that I have, that there's always going to be a need for us. <laughs> right. I think they're, how can they replace us, you know? I agree. <laughs> they famously said. You know, I'm curious as we wind down, um, speaking about the telehealth issues, we are surrounded by rural parishes. I mean, Lafayette is very lucky to have a fiber network system. But we're surrounded by areas that have very little coverage, you know, um, high-speed internet, and that's what's really needed Absolutely. to have an effective telehealth visit or telemedicine. And I know there's a move underway now with Monique Belay and others to identify these rural areas and get them internet. But how does that affect what you do? I mean, I'm sure big you know, big places like New York City and all, people are lucky, we're lucky here, but so many people don't live in an environment that's conducive to telehealth. Um, you'd be surprised. Broadband coverage is an issue that, that is all, it's, it's a global issue. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just medicine, it's education and everything, so many but other particularly things. medicine, yeah. um, when you're doing with, because you do need to have a certain level of connectivity mm-hmm. to make it a meaningful, um, you know, interaction. And about seven years ago, I was representing a healthcare system that was hired by the um, by the government to provide telehealth services on all U.S. embassies throughout the world. So when we started looking at mm-hmm. the infrastructure in some of these very very poor countries, you know, what could we do? And the the VA has been exceptional. I mean, they have probably the best telehealth. They they're doing surgery on the on the on the field. And it's, um, it's amazing what you can do, but it takes money. Mm-hmm. And that's what the FCC has done during COVID. They've committed a, a tremendous amount of money to help build the infrastructure necessary to allow for the connectivity. Um, and that's not only for healthcare, but teaching, because so much of what mm-hmm. we've seen in, in the school systems has played out poorly because we haven't had good internet. Right. You know, And there is a, a disparity, um, usually wealthier areas have mm-hmm. better connectivity than more rural, you know, poorer areas of the country, or not necessarily poorer, but less developed, I, yeah. would, I would say. Um, so coming from a rural area growing up, you know, and, and you know, we Louisiana, surprisingly, is better off than Arkansas and other states. Uh, but there is a tremendous need to continue mm-hmm. to build the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And even people that have access, we've learned here in our house. I don't know if you went through this, but with Kelly home from LSU, and I work from home all the time. John would be here. I didn't realize in the way our house is built, even though we have high-speed Internet, you can't really use it like in the kitchen. Yes. Because it the bricks or whatever. And uh, Kelly was trying to take tests at times, remote tests, and... We had a couple of meltdowns because she mm-hmm. couldn't she couldn't keep the stream up, and the teacher was just moving forward. You know, gosh be darn, who's on, who's not? Mm-hmm. And I've recently just redid our system here. It wasn't the service; it was just the way my house was mm-hmm. accepting it. And I didn't realize if if four of us are on at a time and different devices, mm-hmm. you're not going to get any reception. And it's just it's been a learning curve for all of us. Yeah, and that that kind of yeah. actually it brought up a point that I wanted to make. And that is that many um, doctors 
in the midst of COVID, the government has lacked the regulatory compliance, uh, you know, from a licensure perspective to um, personal health information, HIPAA, oh, okay. you know, so all of, all of the things that we typically do to make sure that we maintain patient privacy has been, um, to some extent, extent, it hasn't been waived by any means, but the government has said, we're not going to scrutinize you, mm-hmm. we're not going to bring enforcement action as, le- as long as you do your best efforts. So we have FaceTime, we have Skype, we have a lot of um, usage on phones. But I can tell you that it's really, really important post-COVID that the doctors that are and the healthcare providers that are utilizing telemedicine, that they, I mean, you're only going to be as good as your is your equipment, your technology. Right. Um, a teleradiologist that has a $50,000 computer that has an integrated software system that picks up, you know, um, you know, the the AI, the things that the naked eye wouldn't, is going to provide a much better read than a doctor that's looking at a film on an iPhone. You just, you can't. You can't. You have to have a certain level of, you know, technology and sophistication to be able to provide that. So I think that, um, and, and, and the other point is, you know, don't go out and just go and, and buy a platform that's cheap. Because a lot of times it's not going to be, you're not going to be able to integrate it with your healthcare mm-hmm. system because you're going to have to upload whatever care you render into electronic medical records. And that's going to become mandatory. You've got to make sure that there's, that the providers that are treating the patient mm-hmm. elsewhere know what you've given them, you know, from right. a medication standpoint, what kind of counseling you've given them, what kind of maybe diagnoses you've made. So I think that there has been, um, there we're going to see that we're going to have to clean up a little bit of this post-COVID and try to get everything into the patient records because everybody's just been just doing their best to survive. I mean, right. that's we're in survival mode right and now. And not looking ahead because just trying to deal with it today. Correct. But I know what the medical record issue, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, just a few years back, doctors were not having to share data online, but now it, it helps us all get better treatment. If you go to the doctor, they can pull up yes. your medicines, your past history. I mean, you confirm it, but it gives them everything they need. Uh, in it it is good. Yeah. And the pharmacists are able to really look mm-hmm. at the contradiction in, you know, in the, the adverse side effects of certain medication um, that you're on. And opioid abuse. Exactly. Everything is reported, which I guess people, some people may not like, but it really helps our society. It helps us as individuals. It's absolutely so. necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you were hoping to get in? Oh, there's just a couple of days more talk that I would <laughs> like to get into. We might but. have to do a second one. I know, but is there anything front and center? You know, there's just so many exciting, um, you know, just so many exciting things that are going on. Uh, I think once COVID you know, and, and I just hope that it's going to, we're going to be able to figure out a way to to end this pandemic soon. Um, and and then I think we're going to just take a step back and readjust and reevaluate. And I'm, I'm hopeful that a lot of the legislation is redrafted in light of the lessons learned during COVID, particularly with telemedicine, mm-hmm. telehealth, its uses, its benefits. Um, but, you know, there's just, there's a lot of unknown. And it's going to be interesting to see how it played out, but to 
you know, I, I gave a presentation at the Louisiana Hospital Association a couple of, I guess maybe a month and a half ago, and I said, you know, all of those, I think I started in 2008 or 2009, I said, all those handouts that I gave you thrown away, <laughs> don't refer back to them. You know, they're no longer good law. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I just think that it's it's an area where if you're a long, young lawyer, you know, call me if you're interested, and I'm happy to mentor you, but this is a, we really need more it, it's, it, it interests me because I'm, I'm listening to my friends that are laymen. I don't know if you're looking at Facebook. I try to stay off of Facebook as much as possible yeah, when I get it's on. Disappointing. It's amazing <laughs> to see that, that everybody's an expert on telemedicine. And they're not even They're lawyers. scientists. Oh, I mean, they're experts yeah, yeah. in everything. No, yeah, they're an yeah. expert in everything. Vaccine, you name it. But anyway, the point is, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at a dialogue between a friend of mine and somebody else, and neither of them have any legal background. And they're talking about how a, a doctor can do anything over the internet. You don't even need to see them. They can prescribe whatever they want and this and that, and, you know, all you have to do and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, you and, I, and I don't in, comment. Don't. Yeah. I don't comment. I just, you know, I just think, oh, uh, you know, but um, I, I do think that there's a tremendous opportunity. I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I, I, I hate to admit it because my kids are getting older and I still feel like I'm 25, but yeah. you know, I'm not. And, <laughs> and so I'm kind of, you know, aging out. I'm old when I look at the young kids that are doing the algorithms and creating this technology and making, you know, they're retiring at 30 because they've come Hit up it. with these yeah. these brilliant algorithms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, 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 they're doing my, my ne- I have two nephews at Stanford, and that's what they do. They do all of the um, the computer algorithms for Is companies. Tolson? Yes. Francis? Yes. And Tolson, Francis, and, and Story Elise's two children. Okay. And they're both, you know, just brilliant. Huh? Yes, brilliant kids. Very, very much so. Yeah. And and and, and you know, they're doing and, and telemedicine is not. I mean, this is they're working on the driveless car. <laughs> and and the crazy thing about it is, it's going to reduce human error. All of this is going to reduce human error if theory is true. If it all plays out, you know, mm-hmm. data in is as good as you know, data out is as good as data in. So you got to make sure you train it right. But. It, it's supposed to, if you have a driverless car, it's supposed to reduce accident rates by 99% because a car mm. can actually see things that the human person won't. I'm curious if a computer was asked that had the right algorithms, should an employer require that all of their staff be vaccinated? I'm wondering what a computer would come know, up with. Really? You know, I think they would look yeah. at all the evidence and, you know what I'm saying? This yeah. is a tough one where humans are making decisions that are affecting other humans. Yeah. Should yeah. we be vaccinated before we can work, or should we be vaccinated Gosh. if we're a healthcare provider? Yeah, it's hard, you know. And and somebody with the history of Guillain-Barré syndrome that can't get vaccinated, I was able to get this vaccination because it didn't have a. I took the the uh, Pfizer, but you know there are medical conditions that preclude you from getting vaccinated, and and it's not that you don't want to be vaccinated; it's just that you have a situation mm-hmm. that won't allow you. But um, there, there's a lot. It's a complex area, and it'll it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. If we can just get a certain percentage, mm-hmm. you think that'll get us that yeah. on the way to herd immunity? Yeah, I think you yeah. need about seventy to eighty percent. Yeah, yeah. Nadia Delhousi, what a pleasure! And I know we probably could go on. We could do another two or three shows. Maybe we'll have to because I know there's things we didn't even touch on. But thank you for making time and for Jones Walker. 
um, for, for making this possible. I'm very grateful to all of you. And I'm grateful to our listeners. Um, this is how we can learn what's going on in our community and beyond. So thank you for listening. And our show is made possible by our sponsors. Um, besides Joan, Jones Walker on this interview, we want to thank Iberia Bank, now a part of First Horizon, Oshner Lafayette General, and of course, Raider and Jason Sikora, who mixes our tape. Thank you for making us sound professional. This is Jan Swift on behalf of Discover Lafayette. Thank you. Thank you.